Several years back, when I was still in student ministry, I was taking my students through the book of 1 Peter, and I was attempting to help my students understand the, the difference between biblical hope and what we'll call English hope. What I mean by English hope is the English use of the word hope. Uh, for instance, because we use hope all the time, and so I, I said this just kind of spur of the moment. I said, let me tell you what, what, what worldly or, or, or English hope is, the way that we commonly use it. I said, it's, it's like every year, all of us saying, I, I hope the Rangers will win the World Series, and then they never do, and there's never a shot. Well, that's how what I would use, because it's this wishful thinking. Well, I just realized, and I shared this Wednesday night, um, I got to change my example, uh, because they, they actually did win the World Series. So I've got to change, you know, wishful thinking. I guess I can now put that on uh, the Aggies hoping to win the bowl game, the Longhorns hoping to win a national championship. Maybe we can shift that. Wishful thinking is how English we use the word hope. Whereas biblically, the idea of hope is something that is guaranteed and certain without any doubt of it not happening but in the future. And because of the certainty and guarantee and the security of this happening, to possess hope means that I in the present am dictated by that certainty, not by the uncertainty of my circumstances and the commentary swirling around life. This is what biblical hope is. And as we step further and go to the end of Revelation, it's vital that we walk through the end of Revelation because it's there that we discover, church family, what exactly is our hope. Because there we're told how everything ends and what it looks like. So I invite you, if you're with me, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, and I'll remind you, if you say, well, what about some of the chapters in between 12 and 19? Don't worry, we're covering those on Wednesday night, so I'd invite you to either join us in person or on Zoom, or you can go back and listen to the recordings on the church website where we cover the chapters in between. But for the next few weeks, we're going to walk through and look at the hope of eternity. And so Revelation 19, verse 1, look with me. John writes and says this, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of, her bond uh, the blood of his bondservants upon her. And a second time they said, hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures who we've seen earlier surround the throne of God, they fell down, they prostrated themselves, and they worshiped the one who sits on the throne saying, amen, truly, hallelujah. So here's what John sees. He says, after these things, and it's important, when he says after these things, very directly, he's speaking about the end of chapter 18, where Babylon, who if, if you walk through in Revelation, you're introduced to the woman Babylon, and at minimum it is a reference to the world system of, of brokenness and depravity and humanity. There's, there's some things, and we'll look at those on Wednesdays that, that may go further than that, but at minimum, Babylon is, as a woman, is representative of the lostness and brokenness and depravity and rebellion of humanity against God. 
And in, in the end of chapter 18, we see God's judgment fall upon her. A after these things, from, from a broader perspective, it, it takes us all the way back to chapter 12. After these things, these things where we've, we've seen the dragon, Satan, the serpent of, of old who opposes God's people, who opposes God's Messiah, who sought to destroy God's Messiah but couldn't touch Jesus who came, born as a babe, who lived, who died, who rose, who ascended. And it says in chapter 12 that Satan was cast out from heaven in the place where he was accusing God's people, and he's now here on earth, and he's got only a short while, and he rages against the people of God, which leads into Revelation 13, where we see uh, Satan uh, call forth and rise up his beast from the sea, the Antichrist, his false messiah. And that false messiah gives rise to a, another beast from the earth who is a false prophet, and in this parody and unholy trinity proceed to ensnare and take captive and, and rule over the world and lead the people, uh, lead humankind into a day of depravity and wickedness never seen throughout all of history. And in we see in Revelation 17 that the, the beast, the Antichrist, is carrying the, the woman Babylon. There is this harmony behind all of it. And so when John says after these things, it's after seeing things in this world get worse than they have ever been, worse than they are today, worse in ways that truly most of us cannot really fathom if we take seriously what the Scriptures say. At, at this period of, of days that are so bad where the people of God would be completely wiped out according to Christ if the days had not been cutting short. After these things, he sees the most powerful expression of wickedness judged. And like the roar of a crowd, the roar of a team who on the last second with no seemingly hope, who all of a sudden comes behind and wins, a roar unlike anything, he hears a roar out of heaven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise God, shine light upon what God has done. Salvation, that deliverance of people from evil and wickedness, from, from the danger and, and, and death and, and captivity to sin, salvation, glory, beauty, honor, worth, power, the ability to actually do it, that these belong to our God. There's this cry of praise that shoots out all over heaven. And it says in verse 2 that this cry of praise is, sits because his judgments are true and righteous. His judgments are true. Speaking about God, his judgments, his pronouncing of guilt and his pouring out of his righteous wrath, the, the pronouncement of guilt and the, the bringing of the actual sentence of punishment says it's true, meaning it's consistent with the facts. It's, it checks with reality. It's righteous, meaning it's legally and ethically pure. It's proper. It's fitting. There's no favoritism. There's no bias. There's no deception. It says the judgments of God, here's what this means practically, church family, the judgment of God upon the sinfulness and wickedness of humankind is never harsh or extreme. 
If it is true and just, then the judgment of God, the judgment that John has just seen executed upon the woman Babylon, it is right, it is good, it is holy, it is justified. Not only that, but if it's true fitting with the facts, it means all of those who receive the judgment of God, in fact, deserve to receive it. Romans 5.8, the wages, the just right reward, the wages of sin is death. Now, that's hard to modern people. That's hard to, to even all of us. You're saying, hey, if I'm just a, a good, sinful, broken person, I deserve the just judgment of God. The answer is yes. But understand, church family, while that idea is unpopular in society today, When all things are said and done and we see the judgment of God played out, we will cry hallelujah because it is not harsh or extreme, it is right and good. And that judgment plays out and it says it it takes, it it has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with their immorality, the wickedness that is enslaving and ensnaring mankind and producing forth wickedness unparalleled, it is judged. Not only that, but in a world that takes it out on God's people, that actively opposes God's will and God's plan and purpose, as that persecutes God's people, it says that God avenges the blood of His saints. The saints who cry out chapters earlier, how long, O God, hear their cry for vindication has been completed. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He avenges the blood shed of His bondservants. So the second time they cry out hallelujah, if the first time they cry out hallelujah for who God is and what He does, and they cry hallelujah, it says her, her smoke rises up forever and ever, giving this picture that the judgment that has fallen upon Babylon, it is permanent. If the smoke rises up forever and ever, there's no shot that Babylon returns. This judgment is not simply a a, a temporary judgment or discipline like we might have seen uh, before us in history or maybe see at times in this day of history. No, no, this is the final judgment. Her smoke rises forever and ever, and this response, seeing this reality, causes the great beings of heaven to prostrate themselves in worship, saying, truly, hallelujah, and then it continues on. Look at verse 5. And a voice came from the throne. Could be that the voice came from God Himself. Likely it's coming from those beings surrounding His throne and says, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Give praise. Those of you who who know the Lord, who fear the Lord, no matter if you think you're great or small, praise God. Declare His glory, His worthiness. It says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. All of heaven is crying out in excitement and praise. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. On the heels of seeing the world worse than it's ever been, all of a sudden, John begins to see and hear these cries of praise as God has brought judgment upon wickedness. He, he, has, he has 
displayed the fact that He is the Almighty. Church family, a term which means someone who controls, whose control over reality is unlimited. It is a term in Scripture that only references God. It says that God is not just mighty in power. He has all power and He has all control and there is none who can oppose. And it says the Lord our God, those who are in Christ, the Lord our God, He is the Almighty, the one who, the sovereign who controls all, He reigns, meaning a sovereign rule. He reigns now and what we're seeing here is when His reign is fully revealed. Hallelujah. It says, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, so let us rejoice. Let us be glad. Let us take joy. Let us be merry and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. Then he, being an angel, said to, to me, being John, write, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, there is initially this cry of praise, this cry of praise because the wickedness of Babylon has been judged, it's been dealt with, the blood of God's people has been vindicated, but then it steps further. The cry of praise for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns, and because the Lord God is the Almighty who reigns, all of a sudden it says that the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now, it's important you understand the backdrop of, of marriage in, in biblical terms. You see, unlike today where the bride, you got a guy and a girl, and uh, the guy goes and he proposes to the lady, and they're engaged, and now they have whatever period of that engagement where they're planning a wedding and then it culminates in the marriage. In, in the olden days, the groom would go to the bride's father and would enter into a deal with her family. And at that moment, they would be in one way legally married, but, but, but the marriage wouldn't take place then. They wouldn't be living together as husband and wife. Instead, the, the groom would go off at that point and he would prepare, he would begin to build a house, a place for the bride. And when the groom finished that place for the bride, the groom would then come to celebration, merriment, parading throughout the city to come get the bride from her family and to bring his bride to the place he had prepared for her. You see, church family, all throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament, Israel is, is called a bride. That's why when in her sin and idolatry, she is called an adulterer. When you get to the New Testament, the church, one of the images for the church is the bride of Christ. And understand the, the fact that the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. What did Jesus say to His disciples? I have gone to prepare a place for you. And if I have gone to prepare a place for you, I will come back to get you that where I am, you may also be, John 14. Here is the reality. John now sees that, that the groom, Jesus, he has returned. It doesn't matter how many people oppose the wedding of Jesus to his bride. It doesn't matter how many people who have attempted to, to stop the marriage from taking place because the Lord God is the Almighty and he reigns. No opposition stops the groom from coming back for his bride. You see the language? It's language of celebration, church family, of joy. Not too long ago, I did a wedding 
And this sweet couple, I I, had ministered to them while they were in college. This sweet couple may be one of the more quiet, reserved couples I have ever married. I give you that preference because they're quiet. They were terrified to be standing in front of the people they invited to their wedding. They're very private. Well, when I got to the point in the wedding where I said, you know, by the authority given to me uh, by, by our Lord Jesus Christ, I now announce, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss your bride. They proceeded to kiss. And in that little wedding chapel, those guests went crazy. They were so loud and they cheered so long that I never actually said, I am proud to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. because I never could. They kissed, they went nuts, they kept going nuts and they proceeded to just walk on down the aisle because they didn't want to stand in front of everybody anymore. It was just nothing but joy. That's what it's talking about. Hallelujah. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And it says in the bride, and, and notice the language, it's incredible language. The bride has prepared herself. The bride is now ready to be taken by the groom. Well, how did the bride prepare herself? Well, look what it says. The bride was, it was given to the bride clothes of fine linen. Now that's interesting language. It means the bride didn't pick out those clothes. The bride didn't earn those clothes. No, someone else made those clothes and gave it to the bride. It says that the clothes are bright and clean, meaning they're pure and glorious. They're without defect. They're without mark. They are righteous. But then it says that the fine linen are the righteous acts of the saint. Here we see this beautiful picture, church family. You and I, as human beings, are by nature unrighteous. We have fallen short of God's holy right standard of righteousness. There is no amount of work, no amount of effort we can do to bridge that gap and get our resume uh, shiny enough to, to be righteous. We can't clothe ourselves and the stains on our clothes are too great, we can't bleach them out. But Jesus, fully God, righteous, born miraculously of a virgin, fully human but without sin nature, who lived the life of full righteousness to God's law that we've fallen short of, who died the death and received the judgment of God that we rightfully deserve who paid the price, who was buried, but who rose again on the third day, righteous and holy as God and man, who redeems and saves unrighteous men and women by grace through faith. And when you and I come through faith and experience God's salvation by His grace, our unrighteousness, which is before God, removed. Jesus took that on the cross. Instead, Jesus' righteousness now clothes us. We're righteous. But this righteousness, it says in the same passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace through faith you have been saved, not by works of righteousness, lest no man may boast. No one can work their way to salvation. Only Jesus can make us righteous. 
But then we miss verse 10 sometimes, which says this, now that we've been made righteous, we've been regenerated, made new, it says we are God's creation. Quite literally, we are God's artistic masterpiece. Created new in Christ Jesus for, not by, for good works prepared beforehand for us. Works do not save. But if you and I have truly been saved, we were not saved to do whatever we want. We were saved to, by choice in salvation, live out of Christ's righteousness, the righteous works He's called us to. That's what it's describing. The bride has prepared herself by responding to Jesus' invitation that He would take her unrighteousness and He would give her His righteousness. She's received his righteousness, and in receiving that righteousness, she has lived it out by his grace and power. This is how the bride has prepared herself. And so there's this cry of, of joy, and in response to seeing all of this, John is just overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. He's just seen the world get as bad as it will ever be. And all of a sudden, he has now seen judgment fall upon wickedness, and now he sees the groom coming for the bride, and it's almost unbelievable. It's so great. So the angel tells him, these words are true. This is not wishful thinking, John. This is not wishful thinking, church family. This is true. This is certain. This is guaranteed. This is what is coming. And blessed are those who are invited. He playing off the imagery of Jesus. In one sense, the church is the bride. In another sense, referring back to the parables of Christ, Jesus describes the parable where the Father sends out invitations for people to come to the feast. Blessed are those who are invited means blessed are those who are in Christ because rather than facing and standing before God, in their own righteousness, deserving of judgment, they stand before Christ clothed and stand before God clothed in Christ's righteousness, his bride forevermore. It so overwhelms John. Look what happens. Verse 10 says, I fell down, I prostrated myself at the feet of this angel to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours. And of your brothers and sisters who are holding the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. A strange little statement. You see, John is so overwhelmed that John who has seen Jesus alive, he's seen Jesus in Jesus' life. He's seen Jesus transfigured in His glory on the mount. John has seen Jesus crucified on the cross paying the price for sin. John has seen the empty tomb. John has seen the risen Jesus. John watched Jesus ascend into heaven, and John just at the beginning of Revelation sees Jesus exalted in all His glory as He really is. John is not someone who is unfamiliar with Jesus and, and worshiping Jesus, but the sight of all of this is so overwhelming that in a sheer instance, John bows down to this angel and the angel says, stop, because the people of God don't worship the culture, they don't worship themselves, they don't worship the church, they don't even worship the heavenly messengers. You worship one and one alone, God Himself, Jesus Christ. And in that statement, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
is essentially to say this, that the spirit of prophecy, everything that the Spirit of God points to in prophecy is all about the person and work, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus. So if anyone says anything other than that, it's not the true spirit of prophecy, of speaking forth and speaking forward God's will and His response. See, church family, we walk through this passage all of a sudden. We walk through this passage, and what we, what we find, church family, is the fact that right now the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. He reigns, church family. We've got to clearly see and understand He reigns. He reigns now, and He will reign for all eternity because He's almighty in power. Today, you and I have little power. Today, there's some human beings that have a little more power over us that make us feel like we have little power. But understand, all will bow because He alone is the Almighty who has all power. He reigns because He's the Almighty. He reigns because He possesses all glory. We will glorify other people in this world, but there comes a day where everyone will be forced to acknowledge there's only one who's worthy and beautiful of all glory. He reigns because He's faithful and true to His Word. The fact that the, the bride, the groom comes back for the bride, it both happens because He's almighty and power to do it, but it happens because everything He says He will do, He'll do it. He's faithful and true. He reigns. He reigns so His salvation is good. Church family, that deliverance from the bondage of sin, that deliverance from rightly deserving the, the, the just judgment of God, it is not found in any human being. No pop star, no celebrity, no amount of your work, no amount of your parents' work. It's found in one and one alone, Jesus Christ. Because he reigns, his salvation is good. There is hope, there can be life. You can be restored to purpose and joy. His salvation is good. Because he reigns, his judgments are righteous and true. He judges Babylon. Wickedness loses. And every last believer who has suffered loss, even the greatest loss of their life for the glory of God, will be vindicated and avenged. Because He reigns. Because He reigns. He reigns, so He returns for His bride. He reigns, and so church family understand, because He reigns, He's worthy of all glory and therefore worthy of our worship. You notice this is a hallelujah passage. There's four different hallelujahs, which simply means to, to make Yahweh bright, to make God bright. It means to, to shine the light on the goodness and greatness of who and God is and what he does. Hallelujah. Shine the light of glory. Shine the light on the greatness and glory of God. We worship church family God alone. We do not bow and worship culture. We do not bow and worship celebrity. We don't bow and worship ourselves. We don't bow and worship angelic beings. We bow and worship Jesus alone. This is at the crux of Revelation, especially if you've been uh, tuning in on Wednesday nights. We, we've seen this. When Satan launches his false parody of a trinity, what's at the core of how they deceive the world? It's that the entire world, except those in Christ's, worships them. Worship is at the heart of everything. You either worship God in a right relationship or you worship or you don't. There's no middle ground. You and I, and there's no neutrality in our life. You can't go, well, I'm, I'm uh, 
agnostic in my worship. I don't worship anybody. No, we all worship someone. Maybe myself, maybe my family, maybe my kid's success, maybe my financial success, maybe a sports team, maybe a pop celebrity, maybe a cultural philosophy, maybe a mixture of all of those, but we all worship. But understand, church family, we are to worship God alone. We're to worship God alone because He's almighty in power. We're to worship God alone because He's brilliant and beautiful in His glory. We're to worship God alone because He's faithful to His Word, which means right now we're in the in-between. He's already come once, and we've been betrothed, and we know He's coming again to take us home. We worship Him because He's faithful and true. We worship Him because He saves the humble. He clothes us in righteousness. He, we worship Him because He doesn't act justice. God is not neutral. Do you realize, church family, because there are times it's easy to doubt and to look at all the suffering in the world and go, does God just not care? Yes, God cares. And there will come a decisive day where God takes the sword and crushes all of it forever. We, wor we, we worship Him for these reasons, we rejoice in being His. Do you see the joy? Blessed are those who are at the feast. Jesus tells the disciples when they come back from, from great ministry and they're just raving, Jesus, we did all these things. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in all that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Rejoice, not because of the great ministry things you do. Rejoice because by God's grace, you're part of the bride. Rejoice because you've got the golden ticket. You've got the invitation. Rejoice. Take joy. By the way, rejoicing, church family, it's not just something you spontaneously feel. Rejoicing is literally the idea of take joy. Set your mind on that which is true. And as you set your mind on that which is true, take joy from it. Rejoice. Church family, our lives as believers in this world should be marked by an unmistakable joy that only this kind of worship can produce. When we worship God in light of real hope, when we worship God in light of what we know is the end, our end, when we worship God in light of that, that worship produces joy. Because today's circumstances don't dictate my forever. That worship produces hope because today's circumstances, even if they last till my final breath this side of heaven, they don't last for eternity. This worship produces peace because it doesn't matter what the most wicked person on this world wants to do, they cannot separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This, this worship produces courage that in the midst of circumstances where it seems like God may not be moving, is He really coming back? Oh no, everything seems falling apart, the church seems to be diminishing. Uh, may, maybe we should listen to this, maybe I should listen to this commentary, that commentary, this, this voice, that voice. It gives me peace because He reigns. And if He really reigns, and I've thought long and hard about this because sometimes we will throw out and I want to be clear here, we'll throw out, well, God is on His throne as if that should just take away any sorrow or concern. Listen, sorrow and concern are a normal part of being human in this world. 
No, what, what should happen, the peace I'm talking about from understanding that He is on His throne and He is coming back means that I only make decisions and I only choose to think that which is reflective of that reality, not allow my mind to think and not allow myself to make decisions based on the things that seem true or popular today while I'm questioning because the circumstances today seem grim. Be like a team at the beginning of the season knowing guaranteed they're going to win whatever the championship is and no matter what the highs and lows of that season are, they don't ever pay attention to anybody's criticism or to the circumstances because they are so assured that they know how it ends. You think I'm playing bad? Well, I'm not going to pay attention to you because I know how this ends. See, church family, it doesn't mean that we ignore the reality of pain and sorrow. In fact, actually, as we worship Jesus in light of this, it gives us the hope we need to know I can go grieve whatever sorrow has hit my life and know that I come out the other side. It gives me hope. It gives me courage because there is no pit so deep that I can go to in grief that the love of God is not deeper still who, who came out the other side. It, it spurs us to action with love. Instead, Instead of living and walking as Christians with despair, bemoaning, and sometimes in our fear getting ugly at the state of the world, we live with peace, love, joy, hope, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control because that's what the worship of the one who reigns almighty who returns for his bride produces. You see, in light of the fact that He reigns, we worship Him, church family, but that's not the only point in the text. We don't just praise Him and worship Him. We prepare for His return. It says that the bride has, has been prepared. We prepared to, to make ready to, to, to be, be equipped in advance. Now listen, God prepares for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Hebrews 11.6 describes God has prepared a city for those who have trusted Him. John 14, He goes to prepare a place. God, God is actively preparing for us. Not only that, but God is actively preparing us. He who is within us. That's why we count it all joy and we encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance so that we may be mature and complete, lacking for nothing, or put it how First Peter puts it. We, we rejoice with great joy, though we encounter great trials right now, knowing that the testing of our faith, which is more precious than refined gold, would result in glory and honor and praise at the day of His return. He's preparing us. The question is, will we submit to His preparation? Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom are prepared for the groom to come, five are not. The groom comes. And he takes those who are prepared, church family, understand we must prepare for his return. So how do we do that, Pastor? Well, one, we prepare by making sure that we are saved. You need to understand today, Jesus is coming back for the bride. But if you are not in Christ, you will not experience the joy of his feast. Now, Jesus is really clear in the parables surrounding the, the wedding language that God wants if you don't know Jesus Christ personally today, God wants you at the wedding. God wants you in His bride. But your family of birth, 
your works, your religious effort, your lack of religious effort, none of those saves you. There is only salvation if you come in response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, you're right, I'm a sinner. You're right, you're fully God and fully man. You're right, you did what I could not do. You're right, I am trusting you exclusively at your word to save me. Understand, the first way to be prepared is to make sure you're invited. But for those of us who've responded to Jesus Christ, how, how do we prepare for the feast? We, we prepare by being faithful to Him at His Word, by His power and grace. You see that language? It says the bride prepared by being clothed. Listen, you and I don't prepare. We're not to go work for God. You and I don't live out faithfulness to God and attempt to clean ourselves. The, the, the focus of preparation today is not, okay, Jesus is coming, get busy. Maybe a bumper sticker, but that's not a scripture verse. The point is not, just go find some work, just go, got to make yourself good enough for God. Listen, none of us are good enough for God, and that never changes as long as we're in Christ. No, instead, realize, I'm not, I'm not working to try to get myself clean. I'm not working to impress God. Here's the reality. I've been adopted by God. I'm not trying to work to get in the family. I'm in the family. I've been made righteous. And when I really start to reflect on that and the greatness of that, I realize I'm no longer like this world. And this world doesn't satisfy. And I'm not living trying to work up to God. Instead, I've been saved. I can live out of that. See, the enemy will lie and say, oh, Pastor's preaching, you better get your act together. You just stink, you need to get free. Listen, do you see the connotation of this passage when Jesus returns for his bride? It's not doom, gloom, and despair, it's joy. Church family, we've gotta live out our faith in the joy and freedom of, of wearing Christ's righteousness. And understand that means we can prepare, it's possible to by his grace and power faithfully follow him at his word, we can be prepared, and we prepare with joy. Here's the reality, church family, as you and I live out his righteousness, we will have sorrows, we will experience hardship, we will make decisions and be challenged with decisions that will cost us. And as we, by the grace and power of Jesus, choose to live out his righteousness, it should be joyful. And understand again, joy doesn't mean there's not grief and sorrow, but joy changes how I walk through grief and sorrow. I can weep with joy at the pain and sorrow I experience in this world, knowing that at the feet of Jesus, I don't weep alone. I weep with a Savior who weeps with me, but who is the resurrection and the life who's weeping with me is because he cares for me, not because he's powerless to deal with the wickedness that caused the pain in the first place. We, we follow with joy. What bride? Listen, if, if, you, if you were to come with me, if, we were, if I were to say, hey, I've got a couple I'm, I'm doing premarital counseling with, and, and the bride, there's no joy in the bride about marrying the groom. I, I don't think, I, I'm just going on a limb. Most of you would go, red flag, Let's, let's break this one up, Pastor. But how often in living out our faith as the bride of Christ, preparing for His return, 
are we marked by no joy? Church family, it should be joyful to live out His righteousness, to prepare his, for His return. Perhaps could it be we've lost the joy because we've lost our first love and somewhere we have listened to too many voices and paid attention to too many circumstances and perhaps even are worshiping ourselves and we've forgotten we worship Him alone. See, church family, we don't allow circumstances in the commentary of today to determine what we do and how we think. Only Christ and His Word get that right and honor. As parents, I don't allow the fears and uncertainties today to dictate what I will prioritize and how I raise my kids. As, as students, you don't have to listen to the worries and threats and the fears of today of you've got to have this resume to get to this college, to get this job, and all of a sudden live a life of total devotion to whatever society says about you. No, because He reigns and He is returning and if we worship Him alone, only Him and His Word gets to direct that. We don't, we don't listen to what culture says we prioritize or how we should shift to be more relevant. We don't even listen to the fears of what does it mean when I come to draw my last breath. If I am in Christ and I worship Him alone, then by His power and grace, I faithfully follow Him at His Word in preparation for the day when we meet Him face to face. And that day, church family, if you're in Christ, is not a day to live in fear from. It's not a day of despair. It's not a day of sorrow. It's not a day of, well, you should have been a better. It's a day of unmistakable and uncontainable joy. And our lives now, if we understand this is where it goes, our lives now must reflect that. So church family today, as we enter into this season of the ending a year, of beginning a new year, as some are coming off the year of your life, as some are coming off a year of sorrow and hardship, wherever we find ourselves, here's simply the question. If we know Revelation 19, this is the first, the, the beginning of how it all ends. If we know that the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, that wicked is judged, and the groom comes back for his bride. Are we worshiping him alone? And are we preparing ourselves for that day? Let's pray. Jesus, you're worthy. We look to you, you alone. You alone know how you're moving and shaking our hearts in this place today. So simply put, Holy Spirit, as you move, may we respond. May we... Um, where we need to confess worship of other things, where we need to confess worship of fear, Lord, may we do so because you and you alone are worthy of our worship. And when we worship you, when our life is lived in worship of you, you will produce exactly what you say you will, your fruit in us, Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, as you move in this place, may we respond, Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray, amen.